Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. Error monitoring is provided by Rollbar. Learn more at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. Welcome to Request for Commits, a podcast that explores different perspectives in open source sustainability. On this show, we talk to people about the human side of code. We cover everything from community and governance to businesses and licensing. If you've ever wondered how open source projects get started, survive, die, or flourish, then you're going to love this show. I'm Nadia Ekbal. And I'm Michael Rogers. On today's show, Michael and I talk with Daniel Bachhuber. Daniel is the maintainer of WPCLI, the command line interface for WordPress. Our focus with Daniel was on the economics of open source. We talked about the origins of WPCLI, staying productive as a maintainer, and his experiences with fundraising through a mix of Kickstarter, contracts, and eventually sponsorship. We also talked about the state of his project today, how they found company sponsorships, why Daniel would rather work part-time on WPCLI, and whether his work on the project could ever just be done. Well, why don't we uh, kick this off by just uh, getting into how you started contributing to the WordPress CLI um, and how you you know went from just contributing a bit to becoming the the primary maintainer. Sure. So I started contributing when I worked for Automatic. Automatic's the company behind WordPress.com and the WordPress.com VIP program. And at that time that I was working for WordPress.com VIP, um, there was you know just on the file server a directory with the hundreds of different bin scripts for performing different WordPress management actions. So for instance, client customer would write in with, you know, I want to take all these posts with this category and also assign another category. Just kind of a, you know, data transformation thing. And in that experience, um, all of these different bin scripts had different usage instructions and it was basically hell trying to sort out, you know, how each one worked. And, you know, at the time I was a support engineer, so the day-to-day was just like, get a ticket. Ticket asks you to do this. Spend 15 minutes figuring out how the script works and that sort of thing. And so I really wanted better usage instructions (laughs) across all of the different bin scripts and, more importantly, consistent usage instructions and consistent um, usage behavior. And a colleague of mine by the name of Thorsten Ott uh, pointed me to the WPCLI project, which at the time was just kind of early stages. And he said, hey, you should check this out as, you know, it's kind of a standard pattern or emerging emerging standard pattern for writing CLI scripts against WordPress and, um, you know, maybe adopt it uh, for, for your quest for more consistency. So in that process, I just started contributing a lot of actually um, what was in the WordPress.com code base back to the WPCLI project and uh, it's great great experience and from there I eventually became the maintainer when um, the existing maintainer stepped down. What was that process like? I mean did did the existing maintainer just kind of give up or not have enough time or or were you just doing so much more that that they decided to just kind of hand it off to you? Uh, He (laughs) We are already going to enter the rabbit hole of WordPress and WordPress as an open source project. So this guy's named Scribu, uh, very, very good developer, strong developer. 
And I really enjoyed contributing to WPCLI as a project because every time I submitted a pull request, he would just tear me to shreds. And like <laughs> everything I thought I knew about programming, like didn't, you know, obviously didn't know. And but great learning experience. And for me, it was a really enjoyable, you know, the times at which I achieved the high of actually a pull request being merged, uh, enjoyable learning experience. So hugely valuable, hugely rewarding, you know, loved it. Uh, Scribby is great, great developer. He was very, also very active in the WordPress project uh, as a committer and eventually just kind of threw his hand. I mean, He's obviously a better person to ask as to why he left the WordPress community, but he made the decision to leave the WordPress community and as such, you know, kind of threw all of his projects into the wild. You know, in the case of WPCLI, I was just like the most active contributor at the time. Uh, and so he asked me, hey, do you want to be the maintainer? And not knowing any better, I was like, sure. And uh, that's kind of how I picked it up. <laughs> so there's no like, official handoff or anything uh he wrote a blog post you know it's like scribby scribby is known for being the maintainer and then he's like daniel's the new maintainer you know daniel has decision making authority on everything daniel's responsible for tagging new releases like on my end it's like i've got to figure out how like the releases are made in the first place you know there wasn't <laughs> really a handoff period and actually at the time it so this was like tw yeah this was 2013 so february 2013 i got fired and then a month later, I lined up my dream job. So that's beginning March 13. And then my daughter was born. My first child was born uh, end of March. And then in the middle of my unofficial week-long paternity leave, I was laid off. So it's like getting fired and then getting laid off. Hmm. And at that point, I'm like, never going to work for a company again. Bad decision making there. And uh, in April, decided to kind of inherit the responsibilities of this old, you know, at the time mature and, you know, kind of it, it non-trivial project to adopt. Um, so, it, you know, it turned out to be a, a fun, great decision, but it wasn't necessarily like, like I had a huge amount of time or uh, kind of openness to my schedule to take on the responsibilities. Sounds insanely stressful. <laughs> you know, everyone kind of has some... Um, I feel like emotional attachment to open source is a big component to everyone's relationships to open source projects. And at the time, for all the other turmoil in my life, I had a strong, positive emotional attachment to WPCLI. And so it was like, you know, it's like, of course I want to maintain it. Like, I don't care how much time it's going to take, you know, like this is the most meaningful part of my career right now. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you see, you see that a lot. Like, you know, the the people that you work with, those relationships tend to to last a little bit shorter than the friends that you meet in the community and a lot of the attachments that come along with the work that you do in the community. Mm -hmm. Can we talk a little bit about that? Just because I, uh, I was looking at your GitHub contributions. I mean, you're incredibly active, like orders of magnitude active than most other people on, on GitHub. Um, but I, at least just in my interactions with you, I rarely hear you sort of like, conveying a sense of burnout or being really stressed out by that kind of work. And it sounds like you just actively derive a lot of pleasure out of it. Um, and, oh, sure. And just, like, how do I you... I mean, how el why else would you do it? <laughs> yeah, I guess so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no. like, where, where do you... How do you keep that, like, so... Like, such a positive attitude about all the work that you're doing? Is it just, like, you just set really good boundaries about the work that you do? Or 
do you just love it that much and you're that crazy? I think it's both. I think setting <laughs> boundaries is integral. And if I could help anyone else involved in open source in any way, it's it'd be like coaching and education around setting boundaries. And like that is a whole like two hours of conversation in itself. Um, but I'd actually like to thank GitHub for being, you know, such an amazing, for all of its, you know, limits, being such an amazing uh, user experience around contributing to open source. Um, because the WordPress project actually is still on SVN in track in like, <laughs> I, I don't like to touch that with a 10 foot pole, you know? Well, yeah. when's the last time you submitted a patch to S, you know, SVN based project? <laughs> um, probably 2009. <laughs> yeah, a long time ago. Right now, if I want to fix something in WordPress, I have to create a patch using Git, thankfully, and uh, upload it to track, and then hope that like someone wants to commit my patch, or at least, or or provide feedback. Or even comment on it in the first place, you know. So, has that, in your experience, changed how WordPress gets new contributors versus something like WPCLI getting contributors because it's on GitHub? Is it just a lot harder? Yeah, and that is a very multifaceted topic, like how to get new contributors. What is the right number of contributors for a project? You know. Um, I think the developer experience of contributing is kind of tantamount to developers contributing to the project. But the thing to note about the WordPress project is that the WordPress project exists as this user-facing project. The end result of WordPress for the end user is what is most important, not the developer contribution experience. To the degree to which the developer contribution experience improves the end user product, then investments are made to improve the developer experience. But it's all about the end user experience and not developers wanting to commit new features to WordPress. And I think that's, you know, so WordPress claims 28% percentage of the web. And it's because, you know, for all of its faults, it's a user-friendly product that lots of users, you know, depend on personally, depend on for business. Um, and that user-friendliness exists because the user is prioritized over the developer. Hmm. Deep, heady topics. Should we talk about yeah, something later? Uh, <laughs> <for me. laughs> well, like, I, I, I want to come back to this point where, you know, you've, um, you're, it sounds like you're out of the job, so you've got to figure out sort of your personal sustainability <laughs> with a new baby. Um, and you're also dealing with taking on this new project, um, which I imagine also has some sustainability challenges. Um, did, did you consider those kind of separate or together? Like, how did you kind of dig into that? I think at the time, I, so the business I do right now and the business I've done for a while is just consulting. Companies hire me to do different stuff. I have a few monthly ongoing retainers with longtime clients. And then on occasion, I pick up a kind of a fixed scope, you know, build this sort of thing. And so the open source thing has always been fun on the side and investment back into the community and that sort of thing. And that's how I treated WPCLI and like the many other projects I've done for a long time. 
And then WPCLI itself eventually became this, I don't know, the best metaphor is death by a thousand paper cuts. You know, it's like fun and rewarding until it's a job that you have to do and requires commitment of, you know, reg on a regular basis or else, you know, everything falls behind and it's on you. You know, it's your fault that everything's falling behind. And so I eventually hit that, but it took me like, you know, good two years to hit that experience. Did it just sort of like creep up on you? Was there something that, that caused it? Mm, I think that for a lot of developers, you're constantly seeking out new challenges and that's part of, you know, the motivation behind what you do. And so as soon as something becomes, you know, easy to do or, you know, you're not, you're not really getting that like thrill of learning something new out of it, then it just kind of becomes work. And so mm -hmm. I think it, it just took me that period of time too. And it's something that I'm actively thinking about too, as a part of contributor experience. Cause I think for a lot of, you know, the leveling up of a contributor from a one-time contribution to regular ongoing contribution, the motivation on their part is that like, wow, this is fun, new, and exciting, and I want to do this, and this is really interesting to me because it's fun, new, and exciting, and I get to learn and grow and interact with this, you know, community that I'm slowly developing relationships with and that sort of thing. And I think that the responsibility of the people maintaining the project should focus in part on keeping that alive as long as possible because I think that keeps that contributor's experience healthy as long as possible. But then you need to kind of figure out what is a realistic expectation around how long someone's going to contribute. It, you know, as, as, as a part of that, like, feels good, enjoyable learning type experience. What, so, Michael, what have you seen with the like node project in this regard and, you know, average lifespan of a contributor, I guess. Well, I mean, the, obviously a lot of people um, come in and, and leave, right? And we, we do optimize for people that casually kind of float in and out. Um, so we don't, you know, rely on everybody sticking around. Um, and I think, you know, for the people that do stick around, it's just a matter of, you know, having it, having a clear set of work for them to take on a responsibility for them to take on. Um, and, and that's all working out quite well. I, I will say that on kind of the burnout end or the, you know, I'm, I have too much work end. And, and you can tell me if this lines up with your experience. But what I see a lot is that somebody will carve out, you know, responsibility for themselves and they'll take responsibility for it. Um, and the, they'll take on a task um, or a set of responsibilities that fits how much time they currently have to work on it. But over time, because the project is growing, that set of responsibilities actually like doubles. Um, and all of a sudden that amount of time that they had cut out for just isn't enough. And it's, it's not, it's not that they have less time. It's actually that the task is ballooned in size um, without anybody really recognizing that. And I don't know if you've seen that um, in your projects as well. I mean, I've seen it in my own experience and I, I, you know, know that it's true just based off common sense. I think the other aspect of it too is people are typically ambitious with the amount of time that they have to commit to a project and how quickly they will be able to accomplish what they you know, committed to. And if you, you know, if someone does that too early on or at any point in the process, they can be burned out at that point just because they get overwhelmed by this big, you know, big thing that they've taken on that's bigger than what they can take on. 
it's like so much stuff to do that's not <laughs> committing code. Yeah, totally. I think, Daniel, what you were saying was sort of touching more on the incentives or like the intrinsic motivations for someone to keep pushing through whatever, no matter what the task is. And then I guess I'm hearing from you, Michael, more about the size of the task or the actual work in front of you becomes unmanageable. But I think like if you're sufficiently intrinsically motivated, like it shouldn't matter what the size of the task is or you would find help to push through it. So I guess I'd, I'd push back on a little, I don't know. Well, I think also to, to Daniel's point, right? Like a lot of the intrinsic motivation is the learning something new. Um, yeah. And when, when people are early contributors and they're doing early reviews, like that on the outside, that might seem like really menial work, but they actually are learning something by doing yeah. that. Like, like by teaching it to other people and reviewing other people's code, it is a learning experience for them um, to a point. You know, eventually it does just become this kind of monotonous thing. And, and we, and the node project relies on just bringing in a lot of new people all the time. So there's always a new batch of people that are learning in that way with these, um, you know, easier review reviews that we have to get done. Um, and the people that are really deeply, you know, technically invested in particular areas don't have to do that work. They can focus on just the really technical reviews. I was thinking like the incentives sort of change over time, maybe to, I don't know if this is consistent with your experience, but maybe you're, you join because you're learning all these great new things and there are all these new tasks. And then there are other incentives to keep you in might be the leadership aspect of it or the community um, or just like the people that you like spending time with. And those are also good reasons to stick around and, and do anything. But I guess even then you're still learning different things or you're learning different types of skills if you're taking a leadership position or whatever that is. Mm -hmm. So from your two's perspective, I'm really curious about the kind of distribution of involvement types across the open source ecosystem in the sense that there's a few different stereotypes that it's easy to point to. One is the late night hobby hacker, right? They've got a nine to five that keeps them occupied, you know, po possibly even something unrelated to the open source project that they're contributing to, but they have the passion for the open source project and so, you know, in the time that they have available, nights and weekends, they try to contribute to the project. Then there's the kind of commercial open source contributor in the sense that they have a nine to five job that's directly related to the open source project that they're contributing to. And it's a justifiable, you know, use of their work time to contribute and be involved in the project. Um, what do you think is like the distribution breakdown? How does that break down amongst different types of projects? And are there other stereotypes that, you know, don't fit into one of those two? Well, I mean, I, I think there are, but it is really project dependent, I think. Um, I mean, f for instance, you know, what, what I see in projects that are focused on developers or like, you know, their, their users are developers, they get a lot more users, right? Just like people that use it every day have an itch to scratch. Um, whereas like something like WordPress, which is incredibly usable for regular people that aren't developers, <laughs> um, a lot of just the the day-to-day -day users aren't um, going to translate into contributors as much, right? So so you're going to see people, you know, much deeper in into the investment end of it, right? Like where, where literally they are these hobby hackers or these commercial interests. So um, yeah, I think if, you, if you're observing that in, that pro in your projects um, around WordPress, that makes a lot of sense because of the the user base that you're tapping into there.
This episode is brought to you by Linode. Linode is our cloud server of choice and everything we do here at Changelog is hosted on Linode servers. Pick a plan, pick a distro and pick a location and in seconds, deploy your virtual server, drawworthy hardware, SSD cloud storage, 40 gigabit network, Intel E5 processors, simple easy control panel, 99.9% uptime guaranteed, 24-7 customer support, nine data centers, three regions, anywhere in the world they've got you covered. Head to linode.com slash changelog and get $20 in hosting credit. So Dana, one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on here was because you've done a lot of interesting public experiments around both getting new contributors and new maintainers and um, getting paid directly for your work. And in some cases, those things even overlap. So I wanted to just kind of start by asking you, um, since you've tried both of those avenues and sustainability is about both money and contributors, um, what sort of balance have you found in terms of figuring out when it's one and when it's the other? That is a really hard question to answer because I don't even have an answer to this. <laughs> um, well, so there are a couple things. I mean, we could just sort of talk about like the Kickstarter campaign, for example, sure. um, which was, it seemed like a really successful campaign that you did last year. And um, I remember that you saw, you said that you were going to work on it part time throughout that time. You, it wasn't going to be a full time thing for six months. And you decided like you, you actually just wanted to be a, a part time thing. And I think right now the way you're getting paid is like specifically part time. Um, mm -hmm. So why why are you not making it a full-time thing? Right. So back to the beginning. So and, and part of what's relevant is that I am self-employed. And, you know, I do all of my time tracking and measure how much I'm earning in terms of billable hours. And so for me, participation in stuff that isn't billable hours you know, has to be justifiable in some way or, or kept in check. Otherwise, I don't make enough money in a month. And my wife's like, why can't we pay our mortgage this month? You know, it's like, well, I had too much fun doing this other thing. Sorry. Um, so I think, you know, that kind of ties into the economic equation because the economics of open source involvement on one end, it's companies sponsoring employee time on a project. And, you know, Facebook is doing this with, with React. And, you know, there's plenty of examples in the ecosystem for that. And that's justifiable from a company perspective. And it's it's not that it's easier to do, but it's easier to do when it's a budget, you know, line item in a budget. Um, and it's much harder for freelancers to do or even people that run, you know, small businesses because, you know, half of an employee's time for a small business is actually a sizable, sizable productivity, you know, loss for the business and an investment of time. Um, so the Kickstarter came about when I left a full-time job and it's like, you know, I've been doing this WPCLI thing on the side. I'd love to like get paid to be able to spend more time on it. And how am I going to get people to pay me to work on open source? Well, maybe I'll do a Kickstarter. And under the encouragement of, you know, a half dozen people, they were, you know, it's like, love WPCLI. I think that's a great idea. I'd put some money towards it. Um, I launched this Kickstarter. I think one of the things about a Kickstarter campaign, 
actually wrote a blog post with all these conclusions that I came to that I think can serve as a reference point for other people. Um, but in order to sell a Kickstarter, you have to be selling something sexy. And often that's new feature development. And, you know, there's costs with new feature development that aren't just directly the cost of the developing the new feature. So the way that I kind of pitched it was like, here's this new feature that I'm going to work on over the period of time. And frankly, like didn't really do like rough, you know, time estimations and cost breakdowns and that sort of thing. And uh, because I knew that the maintenance burden cost of it, you know, far exceeds new feature development. And the Kickstarter, uh, this was November of 2014, I think. So at least a couple of years ago, it got funded in 12 hours. And in fact, I was able to raise twice what I asked for. And then the kind of the second half actually went towards a lot of my involvement um, towards the WordPress REST API project, which is new feature that was finally committed in total to WordPress core last December. Um, so I thought, you know, it was an interesting experience and I learned a lot. Um, I don't know that it leads to, towards sustainability for a project because it's hard to be repeatable. You're kind of, you're selling a feature that you're building. Uh, so for better or for worse, people have to like that the idea of that feature. You know, so there's a certain amount of marketing involved. And if you're an open source developer, maybe you're good at marketing, maybe you're not. Um, and, you know, so if it, if, if it only works and is only funded, if you, you know, think of some new feature that you're going to build and sell to everyone, you know, is, is that really sustainability? Mm. Um, so it was kind of like, you know, it was a fun experiment. Maybe I'll do it again. The way that I think about Kickstarter projects right now is that they're kind of like debt financing. So you're <laughs> where where your collateral is your reputation within your community. And, you know, if you want to raise 40K on your reputation within a community or 50K or, you know, whatever amount, like you're free to. But it is debt that you have to pay back, in a sense, through labor or whatever you're going to produce. Like no one's just going to give you that to do whatever you want. So, I mean, th there's a couple of different ways to, to do crowdfunding, right? There's there's Patreon where it's more recurring and it's just sort of like directed at you. Um, obviously, like, you know, Kickstarter really does have to be about a feature because it's one big push. Um, is there something that you kind of prefer about that? approach though? I mean, especially because you're working on a part-time, do you like to have it locked into a project or a set of specific goals and not, and not be that kind of recurring revenue? Well, so that that's a good transition to what's going on right now, which is, and, and I think brings up a good point. So I want to cover the point first, which is of that Kickstarter campaign, the large contributions, you know, lar large dollar amount contributions <laughs> represented easily the majority of the total amount. So if you want to do a Kickstarter campaign, you've got to figure out who your big backers are going to be and make sure that they are on board with funding you. And how'd you get those? People I know? I don't know. <laughs> got it. <laughs> In the WordPress ecosystem, WPCLI is this project that everyone depends on, like all the businesses in the ecosystem. And so it's almost like priceless in a sense, not to toot my own horn a little bit too much, but 
there's not an equivalent good that you can just use. Yeah, someone could fork the project or rebuild it with Symphony Console, Console or something right now. But there's not really like a competitive equivalent, you know, uh, application. And it is a, a tool that everyone literally depends on. Like, I'm terrified of shipping a bad build and breaking half of all of the world's WordPress data, you know? So, um, so I think that if your project lends itself to that sort of value proposition for larger companies, then it's just a matter of having a conversation with them. You can talk to C-level executives all day long about, you know, what you want to do. If your project isn't defensible in that way, well, it's going to be hard to convince a company to give you money to, to support the project because they don't really, they don't drive as much value out of your project that you're putting a ton of time, time into, or there's an equivalent project that they could easily switch to if, um, yours, you know, was no longer sustainable. Well, this is this is interesting though because like you're you're essentially saying that like there is a particular skill set that you need to have in order to reach out to these companies and get them to invest in this Kickstarter. And I think when a lot of people point at Kickstarter as a sustainability method, they just go like, just developers go put up a thing, <laughs> like on yeah, Kickstarter, no. people will come to it. And it actually like requires this other skill set, which. Honestly, like if you have this skill set, there's probably easier ways to get money out of these companies. Yeah. It's also like I, I think people I mean, I, I almost have like a moral objection to having developers pay like, you know, five and ten dollar donations to pay for this stuff when really it's companies that I think should be paying for that kind of stuff. And um, but I think a lot of people don't don't think about or don't want to deal with the company sponsorship side of things. But how do you how do you force a company to pay for an open source product that they can use freely? I don't know. You tell me because you did it. <laughs> I'm I'm not I'm not forcing anyone right now. You know? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> you uh, you you've gotten a lot of sponsorships right this year. Right. So the way that it's working right now, well, <laughs> the way that it worked last year is I tried to build a business around WPCLI, building premium WPCLI commands that are were specifically tailored to larger businesses. And then also, you know, enterprise support, however you um, describe that. And and I think that's, it's a relatively common model amongst open source projects. Um, and, you know, it kind of worked, didn't really work that well. It was going to be a, like a long, slow, you know, grind sort of a business. And, um, but most importantly, because, you know, it's just me doing my thing and I've only got so much time in the week and my time is zero sum. The time that I was putting towards building this fledgling business was taking away from my time maintaining the project. Mm. And at the end of the day, I didn't have enough faith in the business itself. Like the business existed because I wanted a business to back WPCLI, the project. The business didn't exist because I found some other, you know, valuable thing that I could create and charge companies for. And so at the end of the month or at the end of the last year, I just came to the conclusion that like, you know, like this is not working, calling a spade a spade and kind of at the end of my rope. <laughs> trying to like figure out how to get money into the, the project. Um, so I did this last ditch, you know, titled, what is it worth to you? Or what is WPCLI worth to you blog post? And I just had a, you know, a call to give me money and mm -hmm. some links where people could give me money. 
And it was probably the worst timed fundraising campaign anyone could ever do because it was in December, middle of December, you know, right as all the companies that would sponsor are, you know, closing up their budgets for the year mm-hmm. and, you know, closing up their offices for the year. And, and I just, it was really last ditch on my part, but I wanted at the time to keep WPCLI an independent project and invest resources into it. Cause I felt like the year prior I had kind of been just, um, yeah, the, you know, not really accept or taking on any new big challenges or technical challenges, just kind of like polishing things, finishing things up, closing shop. And, um, and then what ended up happening is that Matt Molnwig got involved. Matt Molnwig's founder, co-founder of WordPress, founder of Automatic, my old boss, um, you know, influential person in the WordPress ecosystem. And he was able to negotiate with some, you know, hosting companies and other players in the WordPress ecosystem. And they came on as major backers of the project. And so where I'm at right now is that I have budget for 2017 to pay myself on a part-time basis. And um, I've hired another co-maintainer on a part-time basis. And I probably have budget for a third or, um, you know, means to invest uh, money into the project in other ways. Like I'm actually having a logo designed right now and that sort of thing. Um, so as far as sustainability goes, like sustainable for 2017 and loving it. And who knows what 2018 going to be. <laughs> so it's just for 2017, those sponsorships? That is the commitment right now. Matt said, you know, it's not going to be any problem to get you the same amount of funding for next year. There's actually a good amount of money in the WordPress ecosystem. You know, the, one of the most challenging things is that these companies do have the money to invest, but that money's in the marketing budget, not in the, like, give money to open source projects budget. There isn't a budget called that. <laughs> no, yeah, no, like nobody that has that budget line. <laughs> it turns yeah. out. Yeah, and there and companies too are, or at least a lot of companies are hesitant to enter long-term, you know, pay for software contracts because, you know, you can basically never get out of those unless yeah. you suddenly don't need the software anymore, which is, you know, not very often. So, it's interesting that it took Matt getting involved to get those sponsorships and sort of this like high level, like, what is this worth to you? Seriously, somebody do something. Kind of <laughs> so <that> action. <laughs> it's, it's interesting, but it's not. Like, if you know the WordPress ecosystem, that's kind of how the WordPress ecosystem works. In the sense that, so so here's an equivalent, Drupal, right? Drupal has a foundation. Drupal has Acquia, the company, which contributes a lot of development time. Um, I'm sure, pretty sure the foundation has employees. The the WordPress Foundation has a board of directors and no employees. And so the people that are involved in the WordPress ecosystem on a regular committed basis are doing so either goodness of their own heart, God bless them, or as, you know, some amount of contributed time as an employee of some company that is donating um, employee time towards the project. And so, you know, a lot of that is just kind of negotiated behind the scenes. You know, if a company wants to have more status within the WordPress ecosystem, they may invest employee time on one or more projects. 
Um, you know, Matt will ask companies to invest employee time on behalf of the project. Matt's actually publicly called out, um, is this uh, phrase five for the future? So 5% of all employee time, you know, towards the project for businesses operating in the WordPress ecosystem. And most businesses aren't contributing nearly that amount, even automatic. Automatic, like as of a year ago, I don't know the current numbers, it was more like two or 3% of employee time. But automatic has, you know, I don't know, 50 employees, you know, some some large number, um, you know, dedicated in part or full time to the project in varying capacities. As a maintainer, would you rather have a company offer um, employee time or money to you? Well, money's only good if I know what I'm going to use it for. Um, so, the, you know, obviously I'm paying myself. Um, and the opinion that I have about that is I'm paying myself on a part-time basis and it's a monthly stipend because I think that like, you know, I'm an entrepreneur and a business owner and I've got little, you know, other things I'm doing here and there. And I'm, if you're working in, the, in an open source community, I feel like you shouldn't get rich doing the open source project. Like you should get rich elsewhere doing businessy things. Um, and so the way that's justifiable for me to get paid to work on the project is that I'm paying myself like far under market rate and it's part-time basis. And it's basically the time that I need to spend on the project to keep it moving forward on a regular basis, you know, ongoing committed time, but I don't expect it to be my full livelihood or, um, or, you know, it's, it's kind of like a fun, fun thing that I get to do on a part-time basis. Um, and I think that the dynamics of contributing to an open source project on a full-time basis and a part-time basis are actually hugely different in the sense that if you're working on a project on a full-time basis, it's possible to fall into this trap of inventing more work for yourself to do. Whereas if it's on a part-time basis, my theory is that you have a limited amount of time available and you are more likely to focus that time on what is actually the most important thing for you to work on and is a meaningful contribution to the project. And just by the nature of, you know, restricting the amount of time that you have on to work on stuff, you're less likely to work on the frivolous stuff that's not going to yield long-term benefit for the project. It, it puts you on kind of equal footing with other contributors coming to the project too, that, that are doing it part-time, right? There's not this huge time and, and disparity between you. Right. And I feel, you know, and so there's this dynamic too of like, well, I get paid to work on the project versus I don't get paid to work on the project. And that's something that I'm like struggling with every day. And the way that I justify that right now is that the people that get paid to work on the project should actively be thinking about and working on making the uh, non the experience of the non-paid contributor much more enjoyable. So like the non-paid contributor should, you know, in an ideal world, only get to experience positive emotions working on an open source project. Meaning when they go to the backlog to work on, you know, look for something to work on, all of the issues are clearly documented. They have their selection of stuff to work on. When they submit a pull request, they should receive feedback on that pull request in a timely manner. And so that, you know, so the, the paid people get to get paid to do the janitorial, you know, drudge work and the non-paid mm. people 
people get to scratch their itch and learn and grow and that sort of thing. And also the non-paid thing is non-committal, you know, so I'm, I've started onboarding committers to the project, people who have commit access, but it's volunteer basis. And I'm trying to be very clear that like the expectation is that you're here to have fun, learn and grow. And as soon as any of those principles are in violation, then like, I want you to leave because I don't want you to get, you know, getting burned out is a really sucky experience. And I don't, want you to have that experience with this project. Before we move into the next break, um, I, I wanted to just come back to the the actual numbers. So you, you funded a Kickstarter. Uh, you said that it got fully funded and then got some more. And then now you have this new system that, that Matt Millenweg. Can you tell us the, the, the difference in the numbers there between what you raised in the Kickstarter and what, you, and what Matt was able to raise from these companies? Well, I, I'm not sharing any of the numbers publicly because there's like a bunch of downsides to that and not very many upsides from a perspective of other projects open source projects that have funding for maintainers get paid uh to work on the project it is a healthier number than that and um and i have budget you know approximately to pay three people part-time um you know to work on the project and some budget for travel and you know other miscellaneous expenses This episode is brought to you by our friends at GoCD. GoCD is an open source continuous delivery server built by ThoughtWorks. GoCD provides continuous delivery out of the box with its built-in pipelines, advanced traceability, and value stream visualization. With GoCD, you can easily model, orchestrate, and visualize complex workflows from end to end. It supports modern infrastructure with elastic on-demand agents and cloud deployments. And their plugin ecosystem ensures GoCD will work well in your unique environment. To learn more about GoCD, visit gocd.org changelog. It's free to use and has professional support for enterprise add-ons available from ThoughtWorks. Once again, gocd.org changelog. about why you did eventually decide to join the WordPress project um, and maybe you know why it wasn't always part of the WordPress project. That's a great question and also a very difficult one. Actually, it's not difficult to answer because it's happened and there's a conclusion to it. Um, So ultimately, the decision to join the WordPress project revolved around the WPCLI.org domain in the sense that I don't actually own the domain. The original creator of the project owns the domain. And when it came to raising money directly for the project, pay myself, Daniel's trying to commercialize this thing, oh my gosh, the original author wasn't sure whether he wanted to give up the domain or Mm -hmm. under what terms he wanted to give up the domain. And so I'm thinking, well, great. I'm not going to like start a business around a domain and a trademark that I don't own, you know, if it becomes a million dollar business, this guy's going to come say, you know, give me 50% of it or whatever. You know, so it's just like, 
kind of stressful. And keep in mind, this is middle of December, two days before I'm headed on family vacation to relax and take a break from life and that sort of thing. And all throughout the vacation, I had this unanswered question of under what terms am I going to get the WPCLI.org domain? And then when I got back from vacation, I um, finally you know, was able to connect with him. And his thought process was basically, does he give me the domain outright? Or does he lease it to me for $1 a year under some specific terms so that I don't take the project in some direction that's divergent from its original you know, ethos and you know, what it is today and that sort of thing. And at that point, I'm just like, there is no way that all this stress and agony and everything related to this is worth, you know, the amount of money that I'm trying to raise to work part-time on the project. And, and so I got on a call with him and I'm like, okay, you know, so keeping WPCLI independent doesn't seem like it's the best option at this point. What's the second best option? Well, you know, WPCLI becomes an official WordPress.org project. Okay, let's talk to Matt about that. Um, and I think that the reason that it hadn't been an official WordPress project for a long time was, again, around the dynamics of the WordPress ecosystem. So Matt Mullenweg is definitely BDFL, for better or for worse. Um, and the project itself is oriented towards the end user. And so you as a developer open a new track ticket, say, I want to refactor the bootstrap load process for WPCLI, you know, okay, how does that benefit the end user? Well, it doesn't, but it fits some esoteric corporate enterprise need that I have that kind of scratches my own itch too. And it's like, okay, so not a priority. So I think for a lot of the developers in the ecosystem, there's this a little bit of animosity and at times a lot of animosity and tension around the decision-making process for the WordPress project. And like, why deal with that? You know, if you can be independent and just kind of do your own thing, like that's, that's much better. Um, and so, you know, ultimately that was why it was not top of my list thing that I wanted to do, seed control to the WordPress project whose decision-making process is, you know, potentially divergent from my own. The moment you said track ticket, I was like, oh God. Yeah. There's <laughs> just like a little bit of like, ouch. Yeah. Was the fear from the original maintainer about the project going in a direction that whose vision he didn't agree with, or was it about the money part of it? You know, introducing money to any sort of situation always makes things more complex. Mm -hmm. You know, one obvious fear is Daniel could make this a proprietary license or have some split license that's kind of orthogonal to the ethos of the community around it in in the interest of trying to commercialize it and make money off of it. Um, I think he just wanted to retain some some influence over over the final decision there. Is the project GPL? Is that the license on it? It's MIT. Oh, okay. okay. Even more free. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I was just arguably. Well, no, I, I yeah, yeah. Well, I, I just, I just found the when you said you know potentially do a dual license, I assumed that that would mean that it was GPL because that's what, one of the ways that you can kind of get money out of 
uh, GPL code if you own the copyright on it. But if it's not even GPL, that actually, the dual licensing becomes pretty difficult. Yes. Oh, I want to talk about GPL just a little bit because the GPL is actually this huge topic in the WordPress ecosystem in that it's used as often a blunt instrument for enforcing certain economic dynamics around everyone's businesses in the WordPress ecosystem. And ultimately, it's around the end user. And automatic, the company as well, right? And automatic. You know, so the way that you make money in a GPL-based software ecosystem is selling hosting, selling premium GPL-licensed software, either plugins or themes, and what you're actually selling when you sell premium GPL-licensed software is updates and support. Because GPL license grants the user indefinite use of the software as long as they want it, as long as as um, as soon as they have access to it. So often, all these premium businesses put that access behind some sort of paywall. But as soon as that software exists in the internet, you know anyone else can redistribute it because that's one of the freedoms that the GPL grants you. Um, and then another business type is just kind of the SaaS business where the GPL licensed software is not novel and it connects to, you know, some SaaS application thing that you need. So is there any conflict in like yours being MIT versus um, everything else in WordPress being GPL? There hasn't. And arguably that's because MIT license is more per permissive. In the sense that it, so the GPL enforces itself upon derivative works, which is why I couldn't actually, if WPCLI was GPL licensed, I couldn't split license the PHP code because the PHP code, um, you know, would, could be argued to be a derivative work of the original GPL license code. If I packaged some CSS with WPCLI, like I could split license that. But that too has been the subject of many a holy war in the WordPress ecosystem, in the sense that some WordPress themes were sold under a split license where the non-PHP files were licensed with some proprietary license. And people that do that in the WordPress ecosystem are basically banned from the official WordPress community. So it's very much discouraged. You're you're talking the, the last segment about you don't think people should get rich off open source. They should get rich off of it a different way. Um, you have feelings on not working full time on these projects, but you're part of an ecosystem that's basically not any of those things. Um, like Automatic is, I think, well past a billion dollar valuation. Does that lead to any weird internal conflicts for you? I mean, my whole life story is weird internal conflict. Isn't that like the nature of being human? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, no, I very, I, like as a software developer, I very much want to create new work and be able to benefit from the on, ongoing you know, value of the work that I've created. And, um, you know, so Mike Perham of Sidekick is, you know, lives literally five miles from me in the next little town over. 
and I've hung out with him a few times and know his story. And it's like, man, um, I'm I'm glad you made it. <laughs> and so Sidekick, for those who don't know, there's the open source version, but then there's the enterprise version that is actually proprietary license and charge charges based off of usage. And, you know, for the Ruby community, that's perfectly acceptable because many enterprises are you know, perfectly willing to pay for the value that it provides. And for Mike, it's produced a very viable, valuable business as long, you know, as long as it, you know, continues to operate as it does. Um, but in the WordPress ecosystem, none of that kind of license-based business model is, uh, what's the best way to describe it? It, it, it? It's frowned upon. It's, you know, it's, it's not part of how you do business. I mean, it it seems like all this kind of licensing stuff around the GPL leads to a lot of conflict yeah. <laughs> um, in the community side of things. And and if you're really just focused on the community and the people aspect, and you're not looking at things from from a licensing centric point of view, it 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 sounds to me like like you're just a little bit exhausted by the level of conflict in general. Mm -hmm. So earlier we we talked a lot about encouraging new contributions, encouraging new contributors, getting people like kind of up this educational ladder, making it really easy for them, making sure that the paid developers are doing the stuff that, you know, makes it easier for newer contributors. Um, how do you kind of reconcile what all of that stuff and what's going on in your project and your role as a leader in that project in, you know, rooms and in conversations in the broader WordPress ecosystem that I'm sure that they're talking about a lot of the same issues, like attracting new contributors, but have such a different context that they're living in. Mm -hmm. I think so. It's, it's fun being a part of an experiment in software development and sustainability in the WordPress ecosystem. Like Matt himself looks upon WPCLI, this project as this is an experiment of investing into an open source project that could be replicable or could not, you know, might not be. But but we're, it's something that we're trying out, and we're open to trying out, and we're interested to see what the results are. So I th there's that's kind of the way that it's thought about. And many people in the WordPress ecosystem are very acutely aware of the challenges of developing open source software. And you know, because there's there's kind of two aspects of it. One is yeah, you just write some code and throw it up on GitHub, and it's open source, and that's great. And some people use it, and then there's kind of associated maintenance burden, that sort of thing. But then there's also this challenge of within a mature open source software ecosystem, there's companies operating in that. And often those companies are actually competitors. And open source, and I mean, this I wish I had said at the beginning of the show, because one of the reasons that I love open source so much that I do is because I think it's this very fascinating time of companies get to collaborate without complicated partnership agreements. You know, my employee here can submit a pull request to Airbnb's, you know, repo and that sort of thing. And and every and it's and there's so much like mutual value creation that you know, so for mature open source software ecosystem, lots of companies operating. And really what they're trying to do is figure out how they can all collaborate for the better of the project, because that collaboration makes the project better and ultimately makes their end businesses better. And it's a very, 
you know, kind of challenging process. But for WPCLI, WPCLI exists at the intersection of all these hosting companies that are dependent on it, agencies that are dependent on it, and other WordPress professionals. And they all want to see the project succeed and be healthy and do exactly what they need to and solve more problems for them. And, you know, this is an experiment in trying to deliver that value to them in a sustainable way because it's not a solved problem, you know? So, I mean, you're, you're pretty aware of th this exact same problem in the WordPress, the main WordPress project, and, and you feel like you're solving it actually a lot better. Like, what, what would your advice be to the main WordPress project on how to, to go about this a little bit better? Well, the main WordPress project has the challenge of reconciling what developers want out of the software versus what end users want out of the software. And often those are divergent or the priorities are just completely different. And so I think for better or for worse, WordPress is end user software that developers are contributing to, you know, because either they use it too or they have some business built around it. And the important contribution expectation to set is that ultimately your work effort is going towards a better user experience. Like the purpose of having you contribute to the project is to go towards a better user experience. If your contribution does not meet that objective, well, then it's not important for the project. And I, I understand that you really want this feature built or thing committed, but unless it achieves that end goal, it doesn't make sense for the project. So rather than balance those two constituencies, you, you have a, a sub, -pro well, not a sub project, but a related project, WordPress CLI, that really, you know, doesn't have the end user. It's, it's sitting in the background. It's used by hosting companies, stuff like that. Is that a strategy to start to spin off the components that have, um, you know, clear constituencies like developers or hosting companies or whatever, where they can be created in isolation from all the concerns about how this impacts the end user? I think that's one strategy for distributing the maintenance burden a bit, and that's one that I'm trying to execute on with WPCLI right now. I think for the WordPress project itself, it needs more involvement from non-developer contributors that really take the project vision and shape it based off of their interpretations of how to improve the user experience that aren't focused on adding new features, but focused on user flows, you know, what the end user is trying to do, user experience and that sort of thing. But those are hard, you know, it's like, where do you find those contributors to open source? That's what I was going to ask. It's something that I keep hearing, but it's, it seems really hard. It seems like if anyone were to do it, it would be WordPress just because they have a company that can help shape that vision and they have sort of an orientation towards a, a BDFL where you can sort of say this is a priority and, and bring those kinds of people in. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering um, for finding a new, when you were finding your, your new co-maintainer, um, what was that process like to be able to find somebody not just to contribute, but to take a, a significant role in the project? Mm -hmm. So the selection pool was um, somewhat limited in the sense that paying someone a part-time stipend that already has full-time salary feels a little bit weird because it's like, where are you going to, you know, where are you going to fit that into your full-time job? So the selection pool was self-employed freelancers pretty much, or small. I'd, I'd certainly be open to someone that 
you know, owns a small business and is, is selling something, but, you know, has extra time to do something on the side. Because uh, I think, you know, that it kind of gets into diversity and representation in the WordPress ecosystem too, or any software ecosystem. You know, I think the end goal is as much diversity as possible under the hypothesis that greater diversity produces greater software. And WordPress, I think, already has very good diversity because so many people enter into the project from the end user perspective. You know, they want to set up a website or blog and WordPress is the most approachable software. And these people are like, you know, a lawyer here and a teacher here and some grandparent here. You know, it literally is used by, you know, you know, huge um, diversity of demographics. And and there's entry points for those people to become more involved in the community and participate as they have time. There's meetups and word camps globally, you know, hundreds every year. Um, the actual like code contribution or product contribution is much more challenging still, I think. But there's a lot of user participation uh, entry points. Um, so I, I got off on a tangent. So good <laughs> tangent. Back to the original point. So diversity and, and contribution base. So as far as developers contributing consistently open source projects, well, there's kind of two ways that you can go go about it. One is, you know, it's ancillary to your full-time work. So it's secondary to your full-time work. You can do it nights and weekends. Then do it as long as that's sustainable and you don't get burnt out. And I didn't want to set that expectation for the next person I was bringing on. Or, um, you know, you can do it as on behalf of your employer as part of employee time. And the WordPress ecosystem, you know, any of these hosting companies or agencies will hire really good developers when there is a really good developer to be hired. But really good developers are kind of in short supply. And I have incredibly high standards. <laughs> Um, probably too high for you know the people that I want to work with and so for me I had this incredibly high standard of someone that I wanted to bring on as an equal in the project and someone who I trusted the judgment of as an equal and um, you know trusted the technical skill of and so it was his name's Alan and he actually had just kind of entered the WordPress community maybe a year ago um, after 20 odd years working in super corporate enterprise software development environment. And he's very technically strong and very knowledgeable. And I met him once and, um, you know, just kind of all through personal networks and that sort of thing. How did you convince him to take that kind of a role? Or I don't know if he needed convincing or not, but. He didn't need a ton of convincing. I think that the challenge is what is the expectation of commitment? Like he didn't need convincing because the project has enough of, you know, good vibes and ecosystem that it's like, of course, yeah, I'd do that. But then the second question is, well, what do you actually want me to do? And it's like, well, on average, five to 10 hours a week towards the project, you know, sometimes getting to work on stuff that you want to work on, but oftentimes it's just like, stuff that needs to be done because it needs to be done because someone needs to do it. So um, that required a bit of communication and discussion and what, what that would actually look like. And just sort of like as we're wrapping up here um, and thinking about 
bringing on new co-maintainers for you, what is keeping you still in the project? Um, why not, why didn't you just, you know, hand it off completely? And when will you know that you're, you're done with WPCLI? Ooh, tough. Hard hitting questions. In the end. <laughs> right at the end. <laughs> right at the end. So when are you going to quit WPCLI? <laughs> theoretically, what, you know, what, when are you going to know inside yourself that it's time to move on? Is sure. it, it being a good place? Is it you not being interested anymore? I, you know, finding new ways to be interested in the project is a forever, I mean, a forever challenge, not as a bad thing, but it's just a cycle that comes and goes. Um, I want to leave it in better place than where I got it. And that's kind of preventing me from just throwing my hands up and walking away. And I think that ties too to personal reputations. In the sense that, like, this ecosystem is one that I operate on. Like, I have many users as clients, you know, for other stuff that they need done related to WordPress. And it would not look good upon me to just throw my hands up, as I've done in the past, <laughs> and walk away. I can throw my hands up, but as long as I, you know, because who knows... I've got to trust that the next person to take the reins or the next people to take the reins are going to produce as good of a product, if not better, than I'm capable of in order for me to trust them to kind of take things on. And that, I don't know, Michael, in conversations that we've had kind of indirectly, I I think that your perspective on liberal contribution policies is something that I am learning a lot from. And also have very strong feelings about. Because <laughs> ultimately it comes down to trusting other people. And I'm a control freak. And uh, you know, mm -hmm. trust for me is earned and, and built. And not something they you know, give out freely, I guess. Well, I think one of the tricks to it is that, one, you, Git allows you to make mistakes and to back them out. So the, the level of trust... You know, we, we need to reset this mindset from from the old subversion mindset where, you know, a, a mistake could cost everybody a day's worth of work that wants to work on this project. Um, and in Git, it's just incredibly difficult to do that. You can really easily back stuff out. So the level of trust you need to give somebody a commitment is much lower. Um, and I also think that, you know, there's a higher level of decision making around, you know, do we allow this feature to go in? Do we let the project move in this particular direction? Um, and those decision makers don't have to be the list of committers. The list of committers can be the people reviewing code and the people that you trust, you know, <laughs> a bit. Um, and you can have a kind of separate group of people that are making the the really tough, really hard choices. Like you say, the people that have really earned that kind of trust. That's actually a really interesting topic that I wanted to talk about an hour about, which is another existential question I have is, is WPCLI done? Or like in two months, mm. could it be done? And we just call it done and make bug fixes and no new feature development, you know, that sort of thing. You know, is, is Node done? Does Node need new features? <laughs> you know, it's like, well, clearly it needs this feature and this feature and this feature, but... I kind of feel like as time goes on, the features get a little bit more esoteric. Uh, or or at least it's possible for all of the new feature development to become mostly esoteric, like 
you know, totally off on the left field type of features, not necessarily like core features that end users are going to use on a daily basis. And, and like reconciling how we decide which new features to embark on building, because it's going to be some amount of upfront development time. It's going to be ongoing maintenance burden. It's going to be support cost. Like I don't have a good answer to at this point. I'm trying to develop a process for making those decisions and have having other people make those decisions too. But I think like one pushback I've gotten about, you know, investing time into WPCLI is like, well, it's it's done, isn't it? Like, why does it need more work? To tie this all off and to pull it back to the liberal contribution stuff. Um, one thing that I will say, and this is very counterintuitive, um, because the people that come to your project often want to pull it in, in strange directions. Um, but it turns out that the more people that you add as committers, the more people that you g give a, a stake in it in, the more conservative the project gets about adding new things. Because the moment that these people become responsible for maintaining this stuff and fixing all the bugs in it, the much the, the project becomes much more conservative. You succumb to entropy. <laughs> a bit, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's it's good to be cautious. Um, I, and I think the more the more contributors that you have and the more committers that you have, it, it, you would assume you also have many, many more users. And it's a lot more users that you can break. And so it's probably good to be more conservative about where you're going, right? Oh, I have a fun anecdote to that related to another kind of one of those internal conversations. So last week I shipped um, Google Analytics real-time usage tracking, all, all you know, anonymizing data, of course. But to trunk and like, whoa, did that get pushed back? <laughs> like pushed back to the point of reverting. So I, it was no. this feature. It's like tracked real in real time. It was really cool usage of WPCLI, and you know it hadn't gone into a stable release. It was just like the people that are running trunk basically, and uh, you know there's the tinfoil hat people that want. Want it to be opt-in and this and that. I was just like, you know, it's not worth it. I'm so disappointed you were <laughs> disappointed in you, Daniel. That's cool. On that note. <laughs> On that note. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we're all out of time today. Um, although I do wish that we had an hour to to dive into liberal contribution agreements some more. <laughs> Maybe that's a, another conversation for next season. So. Well, I yeah. think uh, the feature, new how to decide upon new features as it <clears> relates <throat> to liberal contribution policy would be a good kind of angle to it. Very good. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So we'll have to get into it. Maybe, maybe we'll do a conference panel or something on that. <laughs> Thanks for coming on, though. We really appreciate you taking the time. Hey, yeah. thank you so much for having me. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Request for Commits. If you enjoyed the show, do us a favor. Share it with a friend. Read us an Apple podcast. Tell everyone you know. And thank you to our sponsors, Linode and GoCD. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. Also, thanks to Rollbar for our error monitoring. Head to Rollbar.com to learn more. And we host everything we do on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash changelog. Check them out. Support this show. Request for Commits is hosted by Nadia Ekbal and Michael Rogers. It's edited by Jonathan Youngblood, mastered by me, Adam Stachowiak, and the music is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. You can find more shows just like this at changelaw.com or by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts.
Thanks for listening.